Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come again to the scriptures, especially as we come to an Old Testament text, we're thankful that you have spoken in the past. You have spoken through the prophets and the prophets who looked forward to things that were to come spoke of things they didn't yet understand, but we look back and we see how their words were fulfilled, especially in relation to the coming of your Son. Bless us as we think upon these things this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning in our our series leading up to Christmas, We're going to be looking at another key passage that previews the birth of our Saviour. And to do that, we're going to explore this interesting and telling seventh chapter of Isaiah. Now, I've chosen Isaiah 7 to work from and not Isaiah 9, which also has a significant Christmas text, simply because I find the whole context of chapter 7 and the situation that surrounded King Ahaz, so fascinating. It was one that resulted in the Lord promising him that he would give a sign, that God would give a sign, and that sign would be a pregnant virgin. And to a preacher like me, that's just too hard to resist. Just too hard to resist. So again this week we're going back in time, way, way back in time, not as far back as we went last week to the very borders of the Garden of Eden itself, not that far back, but we are going back at least 700 years before the birth of our Saviour. Now I'm not at all surprised to hear that those of this modern generation seem to think that everything that happened in history is probably irrelevant to how we live and what makes up life today. It's as if the movers and the shakers of this world think we can just ignore the past because there's nothing we can learn from it. And Besides, what would people who lived way, way back in human history know anyway? That thought is often undergirded by a belief that mankind is getting better and better all the time when in fact it seems to me that's not the case at all. And history, even ancient history, has many lessons for us that we dare not ignore. And so this chapter 7 is part of that ancient history, especially of God's people. The year in question is 734 BC, that is to say, 734 years before the birth of Jesus. And I say that deliberately to underline the fact that he is central to our history. Even though some continue to agitate that history must be rewritten to get rid of any and every reference to him. Now let me set the scene for you. No longer is Israel the great nation it once was under King David. No longer is it prosperous as it was under David's son Solomon. In fact, after Solomon's death, it had become a divided kingdom with a king and ten tribes in the north of the country and a capital at Samaria and a king and two tribes in the south of the country and a capital at Jerusalem. Israel in the north, 
Judah in the south. The king of this southern kingdom in 734 BC is King Ahaz. And in this reading from Isaiah 7, we find King Ahaz in a state of panic because his kingdom is being threatened. The situation was that there was an emerging superpower to the north, Assyria. Get your name around its ruler, Tiglath-Pileser. Wouldn't you like to meet him? Tiglath-Pileser. It just invokes fear in you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And this nation of which Tiglath-Pileser is the head has already flecked its political muscle by attacking the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria and forcing them to become satellite states of this new empire. And so the kings of these two countries, Syria and Israel, Pica and Reason, to be precise, were none too pleased. They did not want to be servants of Assyria and so formed an alliance and hatched a plot to throw off the oppressive yoke and control of the Syrians. To strengthen this plot, they approached King Ahaz of Judah to entreat him to join with their plan. After all, three kings and three armies are better than two, right? But Ahaz refused. And so they attacked Judah instead. This proposal had caused much unease to Ahaz. On the one hand, he didn't want to incur the wrath of Tiglath-Pileser. But on the other hand, he didn't necessarily want to join an alliance against such a superpower. The likelihood of this alliance defeating Assyria was pretty well zero. And yet on the other hand, if he said no, the combined powers of Israel and Syria could pack a pretty nasty punch to a small kingdom such as his. So in verse 1 of our text, it tells us of the fix that Ahaz was in when King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah of Israel marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But verse 1 says they could not overpower it having defended his kingdom from the northern neighbours, this was when God stepped in and God put Ahaz on the spot, as God often does. And because he is God, he can do whatever he wants and he holds the kings in the palm of his hand. So there are three things to note from the chapter to see together. First, let's see a king who is afraid to trust. Verses 1 to 9. The real test of anyone's faith in God comes not when things are going well, but when things are falling apart. While the finances are good, while food is on the table, while the children are well, then we can say as loudly as the best of them, I believe in God the Father Almighty. But what happens when all of those things are threatened to be taken away? Who do we trust then? Well, that was the choice facing Ahaz. When his people were running scared in the face of potential onslaught. There was no Geneva Convention in those days. 
Indeed, what was later to be dubbed ethnic cleansing was already a refined diabolical art way back then and whoever wasn't killed, including women and children, were usually transported away never to see their homeland again. So it's no wonder in verse 2 that we read that the people of Judah's hearts were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And it's precisely in that context that God sends his word by the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. The Lord says, Isaiah, take your boy, your son, and go see the king. He's at the pool, the aqueduct near the upper pool. Now, what in the world is Ahaz doing at the upper pool? Well, in this upper pool provided the water for Jerusalem and he was attempting, apparently, to prepare it for the siege which he was expecting. No doubt the northern neighbours, particularly Assyria, would come and lay siege to Jerusalem and if that was going to happen, then the city would still need a water supply in the event of a war. And so out comes the prophet Isaiah to interrupt him, whatever is he's doing at the pool, and give him a message from the Lord. But tagging along with Isaiah is his boy. And his boy's name is Shia Jashub. Or, in English, the remnant will return. His name is significant, although it's odd. His name shows that Isaiah was convinced of what the Lord had revealed to him, that there was destruction ahead for the kingdom of Judah and for Ahaz and his kingdom, but God would preserve a remnant. would have been interesting for Ahaz to reflect on the boy's name there by the upper pool. So when Isaiah arrived to meet Ahaz, his task, his mission, was to steady and to calm the king. That's why in verse 4 he says, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. In other words, you don't need to panic in the face of the opposition that's now surrounding you. Why that is so is found because in this, that in God's sight, these two kings were already a spent force. Sure, they had hatched their plans of verse 6, but the final analysis, in that final analysis, it was not going to be anyone's plans that would count, but God's plans, verses 7 to 9. By these words, through Isaiah, God told Ahaz that he was and is the sovereign God and in charge of the nations and that his promise was good for 65 years that neither Israel nor Syria would harm Judah. Now, if you were Ahaz, you'd take this as pretty good news, wouldn't you? Ah, okay. God's given a promise here. And the promise is that 65 years, we're safe. God will protect us. It's if God had given you a promise that your worst fear won't come to pass, you'd be saying, well, God, thanks very much. I'm very pleased. Because all Ahaz had to do in verse 9 was trust this promise. 
And so Ahaz is suddenly on the spot as God says to him, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And the question is, will he or won't he trust God? Will he do the politically unthinkable and say no thanks to this proposed alliance and trust the situation to God and say, God, we're in your hands? Or will he allow fear to get the better of him and go ahead and making this alliance against Assyria, which in the short term might be politically expedient, but in the long term would spell disaster? Ahaz is really on the spot. Ahaz, which will it be? Trust my promise or do it your way. What he did is found in 2 Kings 16. Given the choice between trusting God and making this alliance, Ahaz chose another path. He went straight to the king of Assyria and asked for help even taking some of the gold vessels from the temple to butter him up and worse than that, offered sacrifices there and then to the Assyrian idols. When he was called upon to have faith and not give in to fear, Ahaz proved to be the unbeliever that he had always been. You can read about his evil reign. Even though God had given him this opportunity to move from fear to a position of blessing. So a king who was afraid to trust. Secondly, see how a sign was offered to assist. Sometime later in verses 10 and 11 we read that again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Now, it's very kind of God at this point in time to come to Ahaz and say, what more do you want from me to prove that I am as good as my word? You name it, I will do it. I will move heaven and earth for you if that is what it will take. Now there's grace for you. In fact, there is an amazing picture here, isn't there? Ahaz is stuck in unbelief and fear and God says to him, look, Ahaz, whatever you want that will convince you that I can be trusted, just ask me and I'll do it. Just ask me. It's an open check. And what does Ahaz say? I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now you've all heard of political spin, but this is ridiculous. Of course, what he really meant to say was, I will not ask because I've already gone to Assyria to ask them for help. But instead of that coming out, he misquoted Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
You see, there's a world of difference between you saying to God, I will not believe you unless you do such and such. That would be testing God. And God saying to you, forget about putting me to the test, forget about Deuteronomy 6.16 for the minute, just ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. And you say, no, I won't. We also know this is nothing but spin because ever since he came to the throne, Ahaz had done nothing but test God by wicked idolatry. It's all there in 2 Chronicles 28, how he burnt his newborn son alive as a sacrifice to the god Molech, how he ransacked the temple, how he set up altars on the street corners of Jerusalem, how he gave away the holy temple vessels to a pagan king and bowed down to his gods. And now he had the gall to try to pull the wool over God's eyes by this, I don't want to put the Lord God to the test. I'm such a holy man. Ahaz is deceiving no one but himself and certainly not God. And so God spelled out in the consequences of that not standing firm in the faith in verses 17 and on, which we didn't read, telling Ahaz that the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. Which he did. After Ahaz's time, 30, years so, 30 or so years later, when the Assyrian army marched right up to the gates of Jerusalem, leaving very little left of the land and punishing the people for their king's unbelief. If only Ahaz had done what he was asked to do in the first place, stand firm in faith. Was it now blown forever? Thankfully, no. For third... We read in our text how a virgin birth was promised as proof. Come back with me to verses 13 to 14. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The tone of these verses has changed somewhat because by now it's clear that Ahaz is playing around with God so God takes the initiative. Even though Ahaz said, I don't want a sign, I won't ask for a sign, God says, I'll give you a sign not one to strengthen his faith as was offered at first, but another sign that would confirm God's judgment because of a lack of faith. This is a sign of judgment while at the same time offering hope for the future. Notice that the sign is not necessarily just for Ahaz, but the house of David as a whole. 
This is underscored by the use of the plural in verse 14. The Lord himself will give you all, all of you, not just you Ahaz, but all of you, a sign. And to say that the sign itself would have been a mystery to Ahaz and anyone else at the time would be a major understatement. The words from Isaiah to Ahaz were, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. So what is this sign? The first thing we have to clear up is the meaning of the word translated virgin. Some who want the miraculous removed uh, from the Bible insist that the word should be translated young woman and not virgin. And they maintain that the son to be born would be a son of Ahaz or a son of Isaiah. But there's no mistake here in the translation of the Hebrew word. And what's more, the original Hebrew has the definite article in front of it. The virgin will conceive. And that the indicates that this is referred to someone who is not yet known. So it can't apply to Ahaz or to Isaiah, but some unknown person who is yet to be revealed. Some may also say that this was to take place during Ahaz's time and not hundreds of years later. For it describes in verse 16 and on how before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. But the same verse can also be shown to mean that all this is just a reference to a short period of time, meaning that this same short time would be all that was required for these kings to meet their end and for the promised son to reach maturity. But the decisive argument in all of this is that was clearly the interpretation the angel gave when he spoke to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, which said, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. Now we tend to think that the quote from Isaiah 7 is Matthew's addition, explaining that this is fulfilment of scriptural prophecy. But here this Old Testament quote is not only in the middle of the action, it also comes not from Matthew's pen, but from the mouth of the angel who spoke to Joseph and told him what to do. And notice too in verse 20 of Matthew 1, see how Matthew refers to Joseph as son of David. Don't lose sight of that. Remember how back in Isaiah 7, the sign was not given to King Ahaz as an individual, but to the house of David. Here is Joseph of the house of David who receives the sign. So we have this contrast. On the one hand, Ahaz's unbelief and sin, which makes things get worse and worse, even to the point of it seeing seeming that the royal line could possibly disappear altogether. And on the other hand, this Joseph from the house of David who receives the angel's words and the very promise of God and goes straight out and does what he's told, leaving us to see that what God promised all those years ago is now taking place. Of course, it was a mystery to disobedient Ahaz as God's word is always a mystery 
to any unbeliever. And so the promise became a word of judgment to him and to whoever did not respond to the Lord in faith. But what was a sign of judgment to Ahaz became a sign of hope and blessing to Joseph, the remnant of David's house, who were obedient and righteous. So what about all this? Well, not only is it remarkable that Isaiah could prophesy something 700 years ahead of him with such clarity, but it's also remarkable that the sign of the virgin giving birth to a son was not a sign that Ahaz lived to see. In other words, it ultimately had no effect on Ahaz at all. Though this sign was spoken of to him through Isaiah as being a sign from God, it wasn't for his benefit, was it? He continued to be faithless and he was buried with his fathers before him who were also faithless. So who is the sign for? The sign is for all who lived at the time that Jesus was born and for all who have ever lived since then. All who are on the AD side of the BCAD divide. We who live close to the end of the age. And who is the sign from? Well, it's the Lord's sign. So those seeking a sign from God, oh, if only God would send a sign, need look no further than this. The question is, are you like Ahaz? There are lots of reasons around suggesting that you and I should never trust God and his outdated promises. Lots of reasons why you and I should cave into fear and resort to the world and by unbelief miss the most wonderful offer of salvation to all who come to Christ. This then is the truth of the coming of the Messiah as told King Ahaz, one who never saw the fulfilment, unlike you or I, who have the record of it, and even more than that, we have his own promise that all who come to him, all who come to this son, the one the virgin bore, he will never cast them out. It is always a question of trust. Not do you believe in him, but do you believe his promise? Do you believe him, what God has said? The sign he's given, the son he sent. Let's pray together. We can relate, Heavenly Father, to Ahaz shaking in his boots, faced with a choice, 
as a king over his nation, either to trust or to run. We would not want to be faithless like him, not want to run to the world and its views and opinions, not want to seek to make peace with the world or even compromise with the world. Even though the world might well laugh at us, saying you believe in myths, the Christ myth. But we are thankful that we find ourselves placing our feet on a solid rock instead. It's your sign that you gave to the whole world when that virgin gave birth a sign that judgment was impending. So grant to us that faith that reaches and says, thank you, thank you for that sign that you gave. Thank you for the salvation that you brought through him. Thank you for sending your son to be the saviour that we needed. Confirm our faith, we pray, this, this season so that we will stand firm, unlike Ahaz, and stand firm upon the promises of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.